Hello and welcome to Sophist Symposium. We're your hosts. I'm Doug Daffin. I'm Chris Benjamin and we have a new guest tonight. I'm Jack Wilson. Excited Tell to be here. Tell us about yourself, Jack. Oh, you know, small town Texan, ready to learn what I'm talking about, have a good time. I think you know what you're talking about. I have confidence in that. I don't okay. think he knows what he's talking about, because no we idea. forgot what he was going to talk about <laughs> until very recently. Our stupidity does not extend to Jack, okay? Gentleman Jack sitting over here. So Jack is in a full suit right now, ladies and gentlemen. It's after um, six. What am I? A farmer? <laughs> I thought oh, I was going to have some whiskey. Oh, that's nice. one of my favorite things I've ever heard from you. Yeah, yeah, Chris Benjamin did not buy Gentleman Jack today <laughs> because he doesn't like enjoying life. Uh, instead, we have Devil's Backbone again. Uh, I really like to say it. about it. But I, I do really have like a college it. station cap here, thanks to Doug. So it's all, all right. good. One thing about home. Jack is he's an Aggie. That's um, true. If I had, uh, If we had a sound card thing, I'd press the booing sound right now. <laughs> Soundboard. <laughs> Soundboard. Yeah. I've, I've been told that we. Well, anyway, let's get on with the episode. Um, so yeah. what this is okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're today we're we're breaking the only rule that we've consistently followed since the beginning of the show. Uh, this is pretty much the only rule that we've stuck to. Uh, what's the word? Consistently. Uh, because for the first time ever, all three of the people sitting in this room, I. Th- I think Jack he, doesn't actually know what. So it is for the yet. first time, me and Doug know what the topic is. Both of us do, and our guest does not. I have no clue. Yeah, I, mean, I really have no idea. So what tonight, about. Uh, we're going to be talking about post scarcity. <laughs> um, and the reason we're going to be talking about it is because Jack's probably the only person I've ever met at the law school who thinks post scarcity is a bad thing. Yeah, I think I can agree with that. Yeah, so we'd like to definitely get his opinion on it and uh, discuss the merits. I want to hear y'all's thoughts first, though. I'm really excited. I want to talk about. I'm I'm really excited to talk about luxury space communism. (laughs) Yeah, um, and God forbid we talk about Star Trek like five episodes. Oh dear God, no! Please no. If we talk about Star Trek, that's going to be a drinking game tonight because we haven't talked about that yet. But I know we need. I saw. I saw Star. Ship Troopers for the first time this week. <laughs> That's a great movie. And that was pretty life-changing. I'm going to say, out it was of all the sci-fi films I've seen, that might rank near the top. Yeah, all right. So, Luxury uh, space fascism. Yeah, real quick, for <laughs> the people know. who've never seen the show or who've forgotten what this show's about. We don't have a viewable show. Uh, we should. I mean, maybe you just don't take the right drugs, Chris. Also, we live in a uh, we live in a single party consent state, so you might be recording us. Like you might have a camera somewhere in the room, and you wouldn't legally be required to tell us about it. And well, that's good. Yeah. Oh, you mean me? I yeah. thought you, the viewer. I'm like, wow, that's really weird. Well, the viewer couldn't because you have to be a part of the conversation to have. Anyway. Yeah, but if we're speaking to the viewer. Okay. I I don't think that's a good argument. So, anyways, All right, so... here's how here's how this works. Um, Chris, Jack, and I are going to talk about this subject for about an hour, uh, and we're going to try to stick to that limit this time. Uh, thanks, Doug. Um, I'm not talking about myself. I meant our last guest. Yeah, and while, we, while we're talking, uh, we each have these beers. Um, we play a drinking game, uh, the rules of which we'll discuss in a second. Um, if you'd like to follow along, but I've recently learned that most people listen to this podcast in your cars, and please don't follow along. Uh, Zach, 
while you're can, listening to this, while you're driving around town. Can you please not play drinking games in a car that you are operating? Just for our sake and yours. Could you not do that? Yeah, because we love you, Zach, and we want you to be safe. Also, there are laws. <laughs> anyway, um, okay, so let's talk about rules. Well, at least we have to have the rule. Let's just call the rule luxury space communism. If we talk about Star Trek, we have to take a drink. That, should, going be, to. that should be a long-running rule at this point. Roddenberry's law. Roddenberry? No, dude, like, I want to call like it... Godwin's law, but in in the In Star the Trek. spirit of this episode, I want to call it luxury space communism. All right. Mm. So yeah, that's that's one of our rules. Um, so I actually saw Star Wars, yeah, or Star Trek in theaters. <laughs> oh my Trek. god, oh, Star no. Trek in theaters. That's a drink. So I'll take a drink for that one. But I saw Star Trek in theaters, mm. and so I feel like that should give me some level of uh, credence. All right. Here. So then here are my what other, other two drinking rules. Um, this one's going to be called scarcity, and every time one of us finishes our drink, we all have to take a drink. Okay. Uh, the accelerating scarcity of resources. Yes, <laughs> you should call that resource resource war or something like that. Uh, the inevitable conclusion to our species, where we're all fighting over the last drops of water. Beer, but <laughs> we've got plenty. Yeah, sorry, of what did I say? Fighting, <laughs> you said water. Whiskey's for drinking. Doug, water for fighting, Doug, come guys. on! That was the, that was a clever joke that I came up with. <laughs> anyway, yeah, what's then, the other one? Well, I already forgot. Well, all right, that's fine. Your, uh, Doug, can we hear? Oh, your every time Jack disagrees with us. Okay. Sorry, what? Can we hear your Matthew McConaughey joke? Okay, so Jack has requested, um, I, I recently made a joke, it's my impression of Matthew McConaughey as a courtroom bailiff. I'll rise, I'll rise, I'll rise. <laughs> no last from Benjamin. We need to get to our topic now. Yeah. The, the yeah. only complaint I ever hear about the show is that we spend way too much time goofing off before we even talk. Oh, so, I that, so yeah. that's a complaint I wholeheartedly agree with. So let's get into it. Yeah, so let's get into it. Um... Let's let's first talk about uh, what scarcity is. So it's it, <laughs> yeah I'm yeah I'm boy to. economics we are super prepared to talk about. This. <laughs> well, I just figured that you were gonna like I, yeah, Chris, I, I figured gonna, you'd read. I thought the you were gonna set article. the background. And I did read the article. I was Wikipedia. just gonna jump well, in uh, to yeah. refute. Yeah, so points. talk about scarcity, Chris, because I know you read the Wikipedia article. Okay, well, scarcity is a really simple concept. Do you want the economic or the simplistic version of it? <laughs> yes. Okay, so scarcity from a simplistic version is just the lack of an abundance of something, a, a, the fact that a thing exists in a quantifiable and, and limited amount. In economics, essentially, it's the principle upon which all economics is based, which is that in a – given the fact that resources in general are limited, what is an efficient way of allocating those resources in order to either generate the most – "Quote unquote value or utility or or satisfaction from those resources possible across a society, or otherwise to attempt to increase the uh, uh, utility, satisfaction, happiness of society over time using the same or a limited amount of resources." Uh, okay, I think I'm already going to jump in here and say that I think you're conflating two different ideas here. Scarcity is just the idea that there is a sorry. Did lim- you say scarcity? Okay, I have an East Texan accent. <laughs> Scarcity is just the fact that there is a limited amount of something. We're not going to attribute, you know, what is an efficient allocation of it. Right, but he was asking for the economic, like, meaning of scarcity. And within economics, you'll have to agree with me that the reason we even have a study of economics is because things are scarce. Yeah. If things yeah, were not okay. scarce, then I could I just, agree with that. I mean, I could just create my own autarky, an autarky in economics being a system where you don't trade, you don't rely upon one another, you don't 
come together with the use of resources in order to try to achieve anything greater than the sum of parts. You just sit there and make all your own stuff, use all your own stuff. And we could just do that all day long if we had infinite resources, because why would I need to interact with anybody if I had infinite everything, right? So I'm just like, oh, you know. Wouldn't that be ideal, though, if you could just sit on your farm and not have to talk to other people? Luxury farm? Wait. (laughs) I mean, if I could sit on my back porch and just not have to talk to my neighbor because I have everything I need. Would that be ideal? Oh, man, wouldn't that be beautiful? Luxury Jeffersonianism? Yeah, Mm. something like that. Man. Is the reason that you have infinite resources, Jack, because you don't pay for labor? (laughs) That was a Hamilton joke. I I, I got it, I got it, I got it, yeah. Yeah. I'm not making slave jokes. Well, you're making like a secondhand. I'm making Lin-Manuel Miranda jokes? References. Okay, moving on. Yeah, so that's that's what uh, scarcity is. And means. Uh, yeah. Economically. Yeah, it's just fa- resources are limited. Um, so we have to do, we have to figure out how to use them. Yeah. So post-scarcity then implies that at some level of technological progress, we no longer run into the problem of scarcity uh, to the, the, the way we have it now, and we restructure our economics accordingly. Uh, Chris. Or lose the concept of economics. Because once again, I can't stress this enough, the existence of economics is entirely dependent Mm -hmm. upon scratch that. Maybe the entire existence, but at least the entire necessity for economics rests upon the foundation of, we don't have enough stuff to do everything, so we gotta decide what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. If you just lose the concept of scarcity, like this is really like, we're gonna be talking about this for the rest of the episode. Think about how mind-boggling this is. What if I told you that there is there are no things that are limited in quantity? If I just said that to you, but the first thing you might think is, oh, so now I have endless stuff to do stuff with. Yeah. But it's more than that. What if you also had a limited, limitless amount of space to do it in or a limitless amount of time to do it so in? So this, this is where we get into a different form of economics. We get into the hobby economy, which I detest, I think is yeah. the worst thing that could ever happen to society See, and here's, i don't understand well let's let's Wait. hang on we're missing a step here um i think there's a step in between the post-scarcity chris described and the scarcity um or the the status quo and that is um there's a level where we still have scarcity of resources but we have significant automation to where we no longer are required uh to mm-hmm. labor yeah so yeah, I mean, there is you can be post scarcity in certain aspects of uh, the the economy. Like we could be post labor scarcity. We could be post. Uh, yeah, I mean, these these things could happen in in, yeah. in particularized I think, quantities. I think the post labor scarcity um, is the thing I'm most looking forward to talking to about Jack and debating okay. the uh, hobby yeah. economy. Wait, what's mm. the hobby economy? So a hobby economy is the idea that <coughs> because things are no longer scarce and because automation has made things so efficient, people no longer have to provide services and provide uh, or allocate resources to scarce resources. So thus you're free to enjoy whatever whatever hobby you think fit and thus people are free to express themselves through art through gaming through just pure enjoyment pure 
what they would do if scarcity was not a factor. Yeah, if you didn't have to have a job, what would you yeah. do with your life? So if we didn't have to have somebody perform basic services, what would they do? Okay, so the Star Trek model. Uh, uh, sorry. Drink. Yeah. And Benjamin's out, so we're gonna and I just and I just want to yeah. Now you get to drink again because I'm, I'm increasing. I'm you know what? So you know like those those households that use up like just by themselves they use up like seventy percent of a community's water intake. Yeah, yeah, that's me, with beer. So um, mm. to 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 be specific about this because different, uh series of star trek have completely different notions of what the economy looks like in the future i'm talking about the star trek next generation version of the economy <coughs> specifically in the movie first contact where picard articulates a notion that is entirely basically non-canon because everything he says is directly controverted by multiple episodes of not just star trek like the original series or deep space nine but also within the next generation, he claims that the Federation has no currency, that nobody has a job because they have to or they have to pay for things. Everybody is on an equal footing economically, or rather, financially slash uh, well-being wise, and everyone just works to improve themselves. Oh, God. Um. <laughs> which he actually has to, which he actually has to be wrong I, about. I, I think that is just absurd. Okay, so, but, but, yeah, but tell us, tell us why it's awful. Because I don't think most human beings are creative enough to entertain themselves for that amount of time. I don't think most people have can identify their passion well enough to say this is what I want to do. This will fulfill me. And because I think there is inherent value in going to performing something that you are not particularly tasked with in overcoming that. I think people like to bitch too much to sit around and say, oh, I love my job all day. What would people talk about if they couldn't complain? Well, I think that there's a lot of – I mean, for example, I mean, you know me – I mean, you know me pretty well. I try to minimize the amount of time that I'm grousing about things, and I try to – spend most of my time if i can being excited about things and enthusiastic i hear your overall point about uh on like a on like a sociological level philosophical no psychological level mm -hmm. people have a hard time but, but okay i think 200 i think so you're making first two different off, points. i just finished my drink so we're gonna have another one cheers this is probably the best we've ever done at actually telling people that we're that we are drinking um just for my own preparation do you think you can hand me one of those beers from up on high once again ladies and gentlemen i know i mentioned this in a previous episode but we are we are sitting broadcasting from one table and on top of the table where we're broadcasting there's a second table and on top of that table is our bar um anyway i feel like you're making two points okay the first point you're making is maybe i feel like this was hidden in there are you saying that what people need to be doing is focusing on one pursuit because it seems to me like people could just, if they do bore easily of any particular pursuit, they could just say, Oh, I'm going to move on to a new pursuit. Now I've got a new hobby. Like, is there a problem with that? I don't think, no, I don't think that's have, 
Either of you ever read uh, Picture of Dorian Gray? Yes. Yes. Okay, so there's a chapter in there. Wow, both of you. Man, (laughs) that's better than we were doing. Oscar Wilde's going to love us. Yeah, uh, you could say we're having a wild time. Anyways, Scottish? Wales? I don't know. I should know. Sure. So it was on HQ this There's past week. There's a chapter week. around the middle of I the book. I should have got it. You know, where um, where Dorian Gray is trying to find like a hobby or something to satisfy him out of life, and like it's it's a really weird chapter because it's one of those like non traditional narrative chapters okay. uh, that were super common. Um, and I don't remember it that well because I probably didn't read it as much as I should have. What do you think of its exposition? That's what I think. But uh, it, it basically describes like his, his pursuits and how he got all these different musical instruments and then um, did a whole bunch of like art stuff or something. I forget already, but it's been a while. Um, and he couldn't find anything, uh, any sort of like self-actualization from it. It's just implied that he went from like hobby to hobby and couldn't find anything. Yeah, I think, I think there's definitely some truth in that. I mean... We were talking before we started with this, me and Chris, about, you know, picking up random instruments. And I think if you just leave people to their free will, they're just going to sit around and say, oh, I'll play the guitar today. I'll play the, uh, you know, piano today. And I don't think you'll eventually, you'll never succeed at anything because you'll just always move on to something else. I don't think most people have enough drive to stick with one thing and say, I'm going to be really great at this when there's really no incentive to unless there's some scarcity, some financial resource that we need. See, but, but but that's exactly what I'm thinking about is because I can see that there's a value there's a value judgment you're making about, well, if they're not succeeding ultimately the way you're putting it, then what's the point? And I think what's interesting about that is I have a very different take on that because for me, the thought of people casually engaging in a number of different hobbies Finding satisfaction where they find it, but ultimately having this sort of total freedom to say, you know what, not really feeling this right now, I'm going to move on to something else, with the recognition that they have so much free time that it's almost inevitable that they're going to wrap back around, take a second look at something, and have a second opportunity to engage with it, uh, flesh out their feelings about it, and have an opportunity to maybe say, you know what, I'll make a bigger investment in this. That strikes me as a really utopian rather than dystopian vision, which is I kind of feel like the way you're looking at it. Yeah, and if I can interject, um, in the book version of Starship Troopers... uh, (laughs) Which I have not read, but I've been told multiple times this week I should. Yeah, uh, in the book version, um, Heinlein talks a bit about self-actualization and what makes humans different from bugs. And he says that um, humans aren't like single-minded in their pursuits. A human needs to be able to do, and he lists a bunch of things, but it's like change a car tire, change a diaper, cook a meal, um, do their taxes, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas the the bugs, you know, they were all designed to do one single thing within the hive mind. Um, yeah. So it's like, you know, or there's that other phrase, variety is the spice of life. But I think if you took the hive mind away from the bugs, say, take away the bee's function of, you know, procuring honey. What does a bee do? It loses its purpose. It well, maybe that's what maybe yes, that's Highland and does Heinlein's point. point is we're not bees. That we're special because we're able to engage in the variety of activities and find meaning from that without being obsessed with a single driving purpose. Yeah, and he was also criticizing Russia because it was 1950s science fiction. Well, 
Russia needs plenty of <laughs> criticizing even to this day. We're not going to disagree on that one. So, um, <coughs> actually, what are you? What I, I are think, you think, excuse me, Jack. Okay. What? Crit- I'm kidding. I'm yeah. kidding. What you mean? Russia isn't the land of sunshine and rainbows. Man, they're pretty good at ice. A skating. fallen land. Ice skating. A ro- ice skating. An illegitimate yeah, government uh, took over from a legitimate. I'm just kidding. Okay, um, Jack. I feel like you were right in the middle of something. Yeah. So I think. You know, not to get too, uh, you know, religious or philosophical on y'all, but I think at the end of the day, the biggest purpose, I think there is inherent value in work. And I think once you go to a hobby economy post-scarcity, you lose that. I think the fact that people have to struggle in everyday life is valuable. And I think once you go to, hey, everything's great, and it might not be great. It might be just, you know, I'm not succeeding at this. I'm moving on which kind of, I guess, goes against my earlier point. But I still think the fact that you do something every day that you don't want to, it makes you appreciate the moments you do enjoy something that you would lose otherwise. So let me let me talk with you about this, actually. Okay. So I think that so, – so one way I think that you might lack some faith in the human species is if you really believe in your heart that hard work has its own value. Ooh, absolutely. Well – don't you think that people will recognize that? I mean, think about it this way, right? There are a ton of people who get up in the morning early to go to yoga or to go work out. And if you talk to them in the morning, they all say the same thing like, oh, my God, I hate getting up early. This is the worst. But they don't hate... all say that. Well, so often but they'll I, complain I think and he's grouse right. about I think, it. I think he's right about Like what point. I'm saying is like, you know, there are people who they do things not because they want to. Actually, a lot of the time they do things – and they don't like it, yeah. but they ultimately, at the end of the day, they get the feeling that I think you're describing, which is like, you know what? I'm glad I put myself through that. And I think that that feeling will still remain even after people stop you know, having the life and death sort of like requirement to go do it, right? I think – yeah, I think that's true. I think you know, I've run half marathons and Good every you. time I've run one, I've just thought, this sucks. Why am I doing it? But then I get done with it and, you know, you feel good about yourself. But I think it becomes infinitely harder to reach that level and to challenge yourself if you're not having to on a daily basis. I think the second you, you know, devoid work with enjoyment and you suddenly say, just go do what you want. I think people far more in this generation, especially, will just sit around and, you know, sit around and be okay with that well maybe they'll it's a, follow other people's well, okay, lives they'll so, follow social media so, they'll they'll observe others question, rather than finding their own challenges question one why is that a bad thing well i mean i think that jack is articulating that he's making a his value judgment is that there is inherent value in hard work and going through hardship and if you remove the need for hardship people will will move away from hardship and because of jack's value call about the value of hard work that by necessity is, is not good. Absolutely. Now I would, I would articulate though, you know, I think it's a generational thing, honestly. So there, there are studies that have been done that basically show like once a big thing changes within a generation, that generation has a really hard time adapting, but you look two generations later and people it's normal and people have adapted. So for example, uh, one thing that people looked at was like, okay, so in this country, Sometimes people talk about lowering the drinking age to 18. Sometimes. It's not common, but sometimes it's discussed legislatively. And one thing that people say is always so – I'm going to just throw cra- this in there surprisingly. I actually am in favor of lowering the drinking age. I think 
commonizing uh, drinking would actually do America a lot of favors. I've you know been to Europe. Then the, yeah. what I've seen there is that they're far less abusive of alcohol and far less abusive of most drugs because they're so familiar with it that it loses its you know kind of excitement of oh you know I'm 21 and let's go just get drunk all the time. You, I could not have articulated that any any better than you just yeah. did, and it's exactly the idea because sometimes people talk about it in America like oh it'll destroy society. And people say, well, look at Europe, but what they respond with is, well, yes, but it took time. It took time in Europe to get to that point. If you just change it now, like kids today will be like, oh, yeah, I can drink at 18 and I'm going to go out and I'm going to party and die in car accidents and whatever else. In Europe, they become a, a co- they become a common – they become acclimated. <laughs> Couldn't find the original world, so I went with a different one. You got there. Um, they become acclimatized to that change in society. It's not exciting anymore. So instead, it's just a part of life. So what I'm asking you... Well, I, hang on. If we're hey, gonna... hang on. Let me finish my sentence. Okay. Let me finish my sentence. Fine. So, Jack, what I'm asking you is, why is it that all of society couldn't adapt to the existence of the lack of requirement to put yourself through, through hardship? And then two generations later, people say, well, yeah, of course you don't have to, but we're all doing it because we think it's good for us. Doug, do you have any thoughts on this? Oh, actually, I was going to offer a third point on okay. the lowering the drinking age okay. gap. I'm, I think I'm against it uh, oh, really? in the sense that really? I, society needs certain taboos. Um, and if people are breaking the law in, in, in more or less innocent ways, then it provides an outlet for um, rebellion. So are you saying you support rebellion or that you support... I support... Uh, Having taboos to I, having taboos to break because okay. I I think it provides a certain um a certain release. Okay, yeah. I think that's a, that's a that's a viewpoint that's very grounded in this particular generation. Because I'm going to bring this up, and I don't mean to just be like to just be absurd about this, but this is something I was reading about the other day, and I feel like it's relevant. So the sexual revolution is over in America. <laughs> um. Or it's just getting started. No, no. Like, oh no, I saw an ankle the other day on the studies. Street. Like studies have been done, and like just BT dubs, millennials are not having sex anymore. Like the rate of uh, youngsters engaging in sex with one another is falling off a cliff. Um, and that's kind of I consider that to be a substantial problem because to to Doug's point. I think that, that one having sex is a substantial problem. The point that the the fact that young people are not finding an outlet in one another to like rebel and like oh my parents won't let me do this but I'm doing it anyway. I think that that like really um benign type of rebellion when we start to lose that, I think that young people are going to be instead engaging in much more dangerous types of like youthful revolt. Because it so, really is, so, yeah. you know, so like communism. I, I think, to a certain extent, I agree with you. So I've worked for some very conservative uh, people, and I've had this discussion with them about, you know, kind of finding, I think every generation has to find its battle, find its next step. Um, ours may have found it with, whether it's uh, social rights movements, gun rights movements, but... I'm not sure I think sexual revolutions is the one we need to be picking. Um, well, yeah, that's what our parents picked. Yeah, I mean, the sixth. I mean, not to. They didn't really. I mean, 
yeah, sex was definitely liberalized in the 60s and 70s, um, certainly, but not to the extent that, you know, you just need to be having free sex at all points in time. I think that's far more a detriment to society than, you know, people protesting guns. I think that's uh, right. far more passive. I mean, I'm not I'm not suggesting that. But I, I think you're right to a certain extent. We Every generation needs its point to kind of organize around and say, this is what we stand for. This is what we believe. Mm-hmm. And this is what is going to excite people my age to get involved in our country to um, kind of organize themselves. Right. There's that part of it. But just to respond to your, I think, very good point about you know, it's not like it's harmful for people to be out in the streets working together, politically active, and, you know, motivated to change things. I'm certainly not suggesting that that's a problem. I think what I'm saying is that also in response to Doug's point about there needs to be benign ways for, you know, naturally uh, sort of anti-authority youngsters to do, to you know, just do little things to break the rules. I think it's unfortunate that they have they have less the outlet in sex that previous generations did and probably are going to find other ways to quote unquote, like make little violations of law. Like, because basically except for the, my parents told me not to bring boys over and I'm doing it anyway, like stuff like that, Mm -hmm. like young teenager thing. The other ways in which you can reject the commands of society in little teenage ways, a lot of them are pretty dangerous. A lot of them are ways in which you could get yourself into some really bad trouble. Um, I think that I think that's true, but I think the natural progression of a sexual revolution is kind of what we're seeing now with the you know Me Too and the Times Up movement. That's interesting. I think the liberalization thought. of sex has brought that on. I mean, it's kind of just when you you know make things. Well, wait, you're saying that people didn't abuse positions of power in Hollywood and before the birth no, control. No, I'm not, not saying, saying that, that at all. No. I'm saying, I'm saying that the more you say this is acceptable at a teenage level, the more it gets, uh, oh. forwarded into a, okay. Yeah. I don't agree with that. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, don't. I think I thought your point and I, I would have agreed with this. I thought your point was that when you, when young people grow up in a, an environment where, they get to be free agents as to their own their own sexuality and they get to explore themselves physically and explore others physically they become comfortable and confident and they generate a sense of self-worth that when later they are put in situations where maybe previous generations would have just sort of shrunk away into the shadows and said oh i'm ashamed these people have the confidence and the courage to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to put up with that because I was brought up to believe in myself and have a sense of self-worth even in, you know, as to my sexuality. So, so I think that might be true if there was a general sense of sexuality throughout our culture, but there's not. I think it's predominantly male, and I think males have been raised to think, okay, I have the ability to go out and have free sex and do all this stuff. And they've exploited that at the expense of females. Yeah, I I, 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 I couldn't agree more with wait, that. Wait, 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 wait. Hang on. Weren't we talking about scarcity like five minutes yeah, ago? Well, okay, well, well, yeah. Okay, yeah. well, we can go back. We'll go back. Sorry, yeah. audience. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of you out there who are thinking like, no, talk <laughs> about that. Here, talk know? about that. <laughs> um, and if anybody wants to have further discussion, Yeah, su- suffice to reason. say, Doug and I are just going to have to – Doug, I kind of agree with what you just said. 
I think a lot of it goes to the young women growing up in a way where they feel actualized in themselves, and then they have the confidence to stand up for themselves, where maybe a previous generation wouldn't. But hey, let's just just leave it there. Let's say I partially agree, partially disagree, and we'll we'll move on. Okay. Because we have a scarcity. Wait, because we have a scarcity of time. Yeah, Yeah. no, I don't want to get super political. Yeah, no, that's okay. We'll move on. Doug. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we were talking about uh, <laughs> scarcity, and we were about to talk about how generations can adapt. So we're we're also about to have to have a drink here because Benjamin's oh, got God. us again. Well, I think it was actually not legit last time because last time I emptied my bottle into my glass, and now I've emptied my glass. So it was kind of twofer. Yeah, he doubled up on us, but that's okay because beer is a scarce resource. Which we need. Not around here it isn't. It's it's quantifiable, but it's in in virtually limitless capacity. So, okay. Let's talk about the way societies adapt to scarcity. Is that what you said, Doug? Well, we were – yeah, we were talking about generational adaptation um, and how Chris has an assumption that um, maybe the first generation where we achieve post-scarcity, everyone will be like, okay, now what? And then you'll get like the David Holmeses. Who so, will so can I jump in here before Chris answers? You, have, you can, uh, and then you'll have like the majority of people will uh, sit on their asses because they're not driven enough. So, before Chris answers, I just want to say this is, I think, by far the strongest argument for y'all's point on a post scarcity movement is that it does just take a few generations. I mean, if we look at the Industrial Revolution, there were certainly people who lost. Uh, their jobs lost their value in society after that movement, but society as a whole adapted. Yeah, I mean, and so I think if you're going to make a point, I think this is the one point to make, for sure. Isn't it funny that you kind of handed it to me when we started talking about uh, that alcohol law change? <laughs> because you couldn't have articulated it any better when you comp- compare the European acclimatization to the to the system to yeah. America's initial inability to accept it. Yeah. So one thing. That I think we haven't addressed yet, but is an interesting point of conversation, is that uh, as far as labor scarcity goes, um, which is really the idea we've been talking about, because we haven't, I I don't think we've discussed the higher level other than saying that it's something that might exist. So what what do you mean by but, the higher level? Um, let's say we figure out a way to freely turn energy into matter and vice versa. Okay. Yeah. Um, we'll, yeah. Pull that off. Well, here's the other thing, uh, Jack, is because I think you and I have been talking from the presumption that like, you know, tomorrow we all wake up and just whatever you want, infinite, right? Yeah. Like we're, we are immortal. We have replicators that make anything anytime because, you know, when you and I talk about like, oh, you know, a couple generations of people who are just like, la-di-da, I'll just do whatever I want. We're assuming that infinite labor somehow means that these people have incomes and are able to pay for things yeah, and, are, and this can is, have yeah, food. Yeah, this and, is kind of – Well, uh, here's, here's – Assuming – but here's a point only to I a certain to extent. I don't think you necessarily have to have a universal income. Yeah, here's a point I want to make is that um, we're, we also have this sort of assumption that one day there's – you know, the president of the United States pulls a switch – and we switch from uh, scarcity to post-scarcity. But that's not the way it would work out uh, in terms of labor scarcity because, like, there are there are different sorts of technology that need to be accomplished for different industries, um, whether that's machine intelligence uh, to replace us future lawyers or um, 
self-driving cars to replace well, the entire transportation industry. So I'll push back about, against that a little bit. Hey, uh, sorry, before you do, so we've been breaking our whenever Jack disagrees with us drinking rule. That's because we'd be fucking God, hammered by now. Well, I've just been drinking every time that he's, yeah. he's done that, but um, yeah, sorry, audience. I mean, audience, y'all should be keeping up with us and yeah. drinking with Unless us. Unless you're driving. Unless you're driving, Zach. Zach. Um. <laughs> Did Zach say something, like, heinous to you guys? No, because... no. I Here's here's what happened. Um, I went to lunch with Zach and Olivia, and Zach was playing our podcast episode with Doug in the car, which was really weird because I was talking over myself on the radio. Um, and I just, and that's when I sort of realized, and I realized it from other people too, that like, it, this is an hour long pod- podcast. People don't usually just like sit back and crack a beer. And I don't know if anyone's ever actually followed the drinking game, uh, besides us oh, while man. we're doing I, I was an hour long podcast when I'm like, I'm on a long drive or like I'm at the grocery store. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. And that's, and that's what I've realized is that that's what this podcast is about and trying to impose a drinking game on someone Ellis in that situation is a no, little bit. I think the drinking game's more for us. Yeah, absolutely. Fair enough, but we should at least note what we're doing. I think otherwise, why do we publish our drinking game at the beginning of the show? Anyway, um, for our listeners. Plus, we don't know world. whether our Saudi. So that our listeners understand why our con- why our conversation degenerates so quickly. and falls off a cliff by the end of the episode. Yes. Plus, we don't know whether our Saudi listeners are maybe playing along with us. Yeah, they might have uh... come from a happy hour just like I did. So. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but so. I think what we were discussing before we got off topic on the drinking rules was that Doug thinks it's going to take a few generations and there's going to be a natural transition into the well, hobby economy. Chris thinks that. What I, I think, didn't say that I think that necessarily. I, so what I think is actually there's going to be a labor crisis because we're going to have a shortage of labor before post-scarcity. Because if you think about it, um, self-driving cars are... A shortage of labor or a shortage of... literally a shortage of labor where we'll have um where we'll still need people working but we won't have enough jobs for everyone uh so we'll have a surplus of yeah we'll have a surplus surplus. of labor that's what i was thinking like simple economics that's yeah we would have a surplus of labor right not a shortage shortage of jobs we have have more people working for jobs than we have shortage shortage of jobs surplus of labor yeah pardon me okay pardon me mr college educated (laughs) <laughs> I do have an economics degree. Let's see. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So why was I answering about you, scarcity? Texas A and M for my economics degree. Oh, it's because I was talking about scarcity, not scarcity. Yeah. <laughs> is is that what they taught you at A and M? Is scarcity? Hey. <laughs> they, they certainly did not make me lose my East Texan accent for that. I'm just lucky. Yeah. I've said any. If I've said any G's today, that's you know. Yeah. Jack, Jack has a degree accomplishment in, right there. An degree in economics. That's right. Yeah, so all but right, I could right, see right. like the transportation industry as a source of jobs disappearing because of self-driving cars uh, by twenty thirty. Yeah, so that's so that's that gets to my point. Like, I grew up in East Texas. I'm from a very very blue collar town where people work at refineries uh, almost entirely, and so the idea that those people are just going to come up with some new you know they're going to take on some new tech job it just doesn't happen i mean you can look at west virginia you can look at the very blue collar states the transition doesn't happen you look at the rust belt why does ohio vote for trump 
No, you're I mean, right. I'm listen. I there's it, not. It a doesn't word, happen. Not I a mean, word you're saying. Maybe in two with. or three generations. Yeah, I think you might be right. But the current generation is not transitioning. So and let me ask you this, because I agree with everything you so, just said. Why why don't we need a universal income in a situation like that where we have the inexor- the inexorable march of technological progress, the inexorable uh, minimization of human labor to the point where there will be a scarcity of jobs for a huge surplus of people looking for jobs, and the almost the near impossibility of those people re uh, re requalifying themselves for a new job market? Yeah. So my hardcore republican stepdad who voted for trump actually believes in universal basic income when this happens so i i think that's a good point i think the idea of universal income is not in opposition to all republican stances i think the idea of universal income is that there's in the first generation who receives it there won't be that transition they'll just rest on that if you make all equal We'll sit at home and we'll say, okay, this is my quality of life before. This is quality of life now. Why would I change? I don't think there will be that progression into a new uh, workforce. So so let me say a couple things about that. One, no one's suggesting that everyone makes equal. I mean, I I think the idea of universal basic income, which is what Doug and I are talking about. Yeah, it's a certain base level. A guaranteed minimum. A guaranteed minimum where the government is saying, listen, here's what we promise. You will be able to live, okay? Like, we promise that you're going to be able to live. You'll be able to have food and survive. That's our promise. But what the the difference maker is, what if instead of being like, oh, God, I have to hold on to these three minimum wage jobs. I have zero minutes out of my life where I can better myself. I'm just grinding away, barely surviving until death. Versus, oh, the government's going to pay for me to just live. So now I have time, time where I can choose to do one of several things. I can choose to either sit on my couch the government bought me and do nothing. And watch the TV my government bought me. <laughs> Eating government cheese in a van down by the river. Um, <laughs> Wait, is that Alex Jones? No, okay, that's that one, actually... That one wasn't me. So d- let's, let's be clear. That was, that was Chris. Um, no, that was dude. Do you remember the Chris Farley, the famous Chris Farley sketch from SNL, no. where he's a motivational speaker? Was, he comes in and he's like, "You kids aren't you're, gonna you're amount to here, jack squat." Uh, I'm younger than squat. y'all. Um, <laughs> I don't know about that, but we'll we'll check ages. How later. old are y'all? Twenty four. Oh, okay, we're all twenty four. Uh, so, hey, um, hey. <laughs> this is like probably the only room I can. Doug, be in. when's your birthday? September sixteenth. Oh, wow. Of ninety three. Yes. Duh, or Chris. April 13th. Okay. Jack. I'm in the middle. Okay, yeah. so I'm actually the oldest one? You're the oldest one here. Yeah. Wow. I'm amazed by that. Okay, I'm sorry. So back at it. Um, You could sit there on your couch doing nothing and living a minimum lifestyle, the same lifestyle you would be living with your three minimum wage jobs, or you could be taking the opportunity to do things so as to get yourself to the point where you could be living a lot better. And what, you know, what's, what's interesting to me, Jack, is based on your position that there's inherent value in work, self-improvement, and that grind to make yourself better. Why wouldn't the average, like an ordinary person, respond to the situation by saying, well, hell, this is an incredible opportunity? So I think... The first point is 
the person working three jobs. That's definitely occurs, but that's not the average that we're looking at. We're looking at the person who works the nine to five, goes home, you know, has a little bit of free time right now. Um, obviously, that person's better off with a universal basic income. And I'm not sure I'm totally opposed to universal basic income on a certain level. I think first, I think I believe in raising the minimum wage. Um, I know that's not what people would think I would say, but I think to a certain extent, it's not be, heartless. Jeff. I'm not heartless. Let's be real here. To seven dollars and fifty cents. No, I think <laughs> I think you get it up around ten. I, I get it up okay, around ten. Okay. Um, but I also think the minimum wage only extends to a certain uh, sector of society. That I think the minimum wage is supposed to support, support you know, essentially people, either new graduates. You know, people with GEDs, people just entering the workforce. It's not supposed to be your, you know, quality of life forever. It's supposed to be the transition from first job to second. Well, surely you'll agree with me that the the free market is failing if that's the objective because the free market is holding that as a lifelong income level. Oh, I, I agree with that. Okay. Yeah, I think I think I definitely agree with that point. Um, but then moving on to this person, you say we're working three jobs. We're transitioning to a hobby economy. So now they have all this time to, you know, realize what they want to do in life. So let's say, what what what, what is this person going to do in life that people are going to pay for? Okay, so... But what, if we have a user, universal basic income, yeah, I guess they're making standard, they can have a house, they can have a family. Uh, maybe not. I mean, a realistic look at universal basic income. I think Finland has uh, actually done one. So um, I think that basically what it pays for is like you can have an apartment for yourself. Okay. And like afford food. Like I'm, I'm good. You, I'm glad you pointed this out because I have a real problem when people compare U.S. to Nordic countries. Real problem. I really detest the Nordic countries, and not because they do things. <laughs> All right, Jack. Not because Jack, they do. Come on. Not because they do things wrong. No, hold up. But just because comparing a country of, what do we have in the U.S., 30, 300 million to a country, let's say like Sweden with like, what, 10 million? It's not apples to oranges. All right. Uh, you can say, it is apples You can oranges. say you hate the comparison. Is that I a do, more accurate I do thing? hate the comparison. Because what you said is I hate Nordic countries. So my reaction was. I, I also don't. Well, my reaction. I really like the Nordic country. I think they're boring as hell. Have you ever been to a Nordic country? That's what I thought. It's a beautiful. I don't. Place. I don't think I've ever actually been to. Nordic no, of country. course you haven't, because if you had been it there, might you would be realize, a beautiful country. You would realize how beautiful but, and vibrant and dynamic God, me, those countries are. Give me the southern hemisphere every day of the week. Okay, Jack. Mm. But as a proud Dane, I would have had to take you outside and start a fist fight with it's you. It's all because... right. We won the, con- uh, the cross-country gold. Thank you, Minnesota. <laughs> My mom will like that reference. So, uh, I, I know about Vikings. So, um... <laughs> okay. A little Viking blood in me. But besides, yeah, but I, I've got a lot more than you yeah, do. Yeah, you do. You and do. you, okay. I got some anyway, Cajun in me, too. I, so. I'm, I'm trying to fight my urge to just have a battle with you about how great these countries are. But, okay, let's just take it all to one side. Let's just say operating at a really basic, really basic universal income, you have pretty much like you have a student's budget. Okay. Except instead of borrowing all your money, you just that money's just yours. 
Okay. Well, obviously, let's not even talk about students because obviously what students are doing is investing in themselves and they're working on their skills yeah, and they're making yeah, themselves – I guess I'd, I'd want more clarification. That's one thing. Let, what let's do you talk... think a student's budget is? Well, like, okay, I'm living on a student's budget and all of it is borrowed money that I'm going to have to pay back. But I mean – But like for not me – Not counting borrowed money like you're saying quality of life. Okay. Um, Quality of life being like – Maybe you can eat out two or three times a week. Yeah, sure. my life, like right now, the, an apartment like this one. Apartment, okay. So like a studio, small apa- yeah, small apartment, studio, small apartment, studio level, one bedroom, two bedroom. You're really not buying a lot of things that yeah. aren't like direct consumables. It's mostly food. Yeah, but like you know, okay. So let's talk about like what you instead of having to work, or let's just pretend. Let's pretend you're just a person who's like. Well, I'm not in school. I was working, but now I don't have to work because the government is paying for what would otherwise be just my minimum wage jobs, right? Okay. Let's take the most pessimistic view, which is that the person's like, I don't know. I guess I'll mostly smoke weed, watch TV. Maybe I'll jam out with my friends. So then maybe we have a person who's like, well, now I'm spending a whole lot of time goofing around playing guitar, and now I'm meeting new friends. And those new friends are – some of them are musicians. Maybe they'll come over and jam with me. And maybe I'll interact with them more and more. Maybe we'll play music together. Maybe we'll talk about music. Maybe we'll start to really get into music. And maybe we'll start to talk about, well, maybe we should just you know, form a little group that spends some time playing music together. Maybe we'll think that, oh, okay, maybe we'll get some gigs. Maybe we'll play at some local bars. Maybe. But what it also is starting to provide is this sort of network, this social network that's starting to – have an impact on who I am, who I know, and what my horizons are being expanded to include. Maybe I'm starting to meet people who have ideas for opportunities that we can all do together. Maybe I'm starting to form these sort of social connections that bring me out of what was previously a pretty dismal nine-to-five, like, uh, dead-end existence and are starting to put me back on the path towards confidence in myself, a sense of self-worth, and ultimately a real feeling of belonging in the community. And maybe at that point, even if all I've been doing in the past 18 or 24 months has just been putzing around, smoking weed, and hanging out with friends, maybe, maybe I'm eventually starting to get to a point where I have the kind of confidence and self-worth where I might start thinking about wishing for something more. And that is maybe even at the most pessimistic idea of like just a bunch of lazy idiots sitting around and feeding off of the government's teeth. Maybe we're starting to look at something that looks pretty inspiring. So I think that prints that paints a pretty rosy picture. <laughs> Let's be clear. I want to do that. Yeah. So I think that would be ideal. They sit around, they hang out. People support them. They get a self-worth in that. But why? Why would suddenly people think, this has self-worth? So here's... This, other people would recognize that self-worth. I don't, I don't disagree that that person might find self-worth in that. But I think, ultimately, people are so dependent on what other people view them as that the only way they would get self-worth is if other people recognized it. And I don't think at that level there would be enough people recognizing your ability to make it valuable. So I think that people naturally try to self-actualize. Um, I think they're, they're drawn to exploring and, and becoming a person. 
uh, in whatever way they believe uh, makes them a person. Like, I agree. I agree with that. But I, I think one of the major barriers for that is certainly having to provide an existence for yourself because that's suddenly eight hours or more a day. Uh, but but you're and saying a significant amount of time and energy. But you're saying that if we make everybody receive a basic income, that suddenly people, if you make everybody equal at a basic level, that people are going to be satisfied with, I'm the same as, you know, Joe Smith down the street. I don't think that's true. I think everybody, comp- there's a comparison between every single yeah, person. And, and, not just and that's not going to go away. Not just comparison, but competition. And yes. that's part of the reason why people try to self-actualize and define themselves is so that they can define themselves as someone um, different from other people. Yeah, I mean, actually, what you just articulated, Jack, seems to suggest that if you give everyone the same baseline... They'll try to differentiate themselves, and that'll be a driving uh, yeah. characteristic in whatever they pursue. They'll, they will naturally strive to better themselves for fear of being the same as everybody else. It seems like what you, you've actually set up is this, like, this, this base psychological drive to be better. Okay, so I think there's... I'm going to make two points. First, I think this was, this gets to the point of why certain Republicans don't reject a universal basic income. Because it does establish this drive. If you give everybody a certain level, everybody's going to try and better themselves above that level. I think that's different than a hobby economy, which is scarcity. Um, Post-scarcity. Post-scarcity, if Doug's going to point it out. <laughs> but even in a post-scarcity situation, let's say, you know, well, actually, no, 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 sorry. You are right. I think it gets harder at that point. No, you're right, because instead of there being this natural stigma about, you know, because if the lowest common denominator in today's society is the homeless person, nobody wants to be the homeless person. Because in addition to the struggle of being homeless, there's also the stigma attached to like, well, that's the lowest economic condition in society. Um, Jack, what? <laughs> Jack, what's going on? Uh, nothing big. Nothing, uh, we're yeah. we're conspiring against you. So I think one of the one of the things that the post scary, and if we can actually move into final thoughts, um, for Jack's sake, uh, I think. <laughs> the the point of post scarcity is that uh it removes probably the biggest stick which is you're no longer going to be homeless if we have you know accommodation um if we have universal basic income basic housing healthcare access to food water etc uh but it also but you can keep a carrot um, in front of people, which is to say, do you really want, you know, government-issued studio apartment, or do you want uh, to live in a more luxurious, do you want a more luxurious lifestyle? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just think that gets harder to achieve, but yeah. Yeah, I, I think it would get harder to achieve, and it would definitely be a different allocation of resources. Yeah, uh, I think I agree with that. Yeah, Jack, final thoughts? Yeah, I think um, that was a pretty good summary, I think. That a universal basic income would set people up to a certain standard, but I think 
adapting that with a hobby economy would ultimately result in a failure because I think people would, I don't think there's enough diversity in people's interests to achieve greater success at that point. Um, there are certain people in this world who would succeed. Maybe I'm just worried because I know I wouldn't succeed in that market and that might be the cause, but there are certain people who would. And so, you know, you got to protect yourself. I think that what's what's been interesting to me is sort of tracking this dynamic between Jack's uh, definition of of success within uh, a yeah. w- within a within a context like the hobby economy or or any other kind of economy as, he, as he's described, and maybe mine and maybe Doug's definition of success. Um, you know, there was one thing that really got to me about the Star Trek version of what I what I'm jokingly calling luxury space communism. And the hobby economy that that Jack is uh, reacting against, and it's you know people heard that speech by Picard, this famous speech where he's like, "We don't have money, we don't have poverty, we don't have any of these notions. What we have instead is a whole society of people who just they have no other. There's nothing else imp- um, imposing upon their time, so they strive to better themselves. And people would point and say like. Well, what about like – I mean there's janitors in this society. There's there's people who do menial labor. There's there's people who do that kind of stuff. And the reaction that I had to that was essentially that um, it must be that in this post-scarcity civilization, these people have found such deep sense of achievement, satisfaction, accomplishment, and – actualization even in menial tasks that they choose to dedicate themselves to achieving the best they can in that without obsessing over an objective sense or an achieve or of an, or an accumulation based sense of achievement and i think there's something truly beautiful about that i think it harkens back to an eastern uh notion of kung fu which at least from one variant means just Doing something, no matter what it is, with a mastery. And I think that's truly beautiful. And if there is a way that the human species can amount to that, I believe they can, and I hope they will. I mean, you call that kung fu, I call that art. Because I agree! Well, we because we discussed this two episodes ago, but uh, art is literally something that requires a skill. Um, right. To be, a, to be an artisan, to do it. And right, I, if you can uh, wrap, wrap this out. Absolutely. Um... Thank you so much once again for joining in with us tonight. We were really happy to uh, bring you uh, Jack to discuss this topic with us. I thought he was a wonderful guest. Um, it was and... nice to get a breath of fresh air. Yeah, but it, it, it was awesome. He was active. He was engaged. He had a lot of cool thoughts. Really thought it was excellent. Um, thank you so much for listening in with us. We hope you have a great night, and we hope you listen again soon.